So from Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And then from Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 22. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven... Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having a heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Good morning, everyone. Um, for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Dave, one of the members here at Emmanuel. Um, before I start, I do just have to make a note. I do have a small motorbike, but it, it is not one of these. So I don't want Dan to uh, misinform you there. It is a 125, but it's got gears, okay? So it's not a moped. Let's, uh, let's just put that out on the table. <laughs> Secondly, not that I'm hurt by that comment. <laughs> Secondly, um, I'm going to be preaching this morning from Hebrews 9 and 10. Obviously, there, are, there is a um, section of that that is, preached, uh, that is printed in the service sheets. If you have got your Bibles with you, if you could open it up, because I'm going to be going a little bit wider than some of what's printed. Um, it's just they're two quite long chapters, and we didn't really have time to read both of them in entirety this morning. We'd probably still be here um, well after lunch. So if you do have your Bibles or your phone with you and you're able to look a little bit further, because I'll be drawing a few verses just a bit further out. Um, just a quick note on that. If you are able to, when you get home, have a read through both chapters. Um, just check that what I've said is actually coming from the scripture. Because if I've just said it, it means nothing. But if God said it, then it's worth listening to, isn't it? <coughs> right, a question for you as we begin. What is the biggest problem that you are facing at the moment? Um, perhaps it's a credit card bill that just keeps getting bigger and bigger. You just cannot find the money to pay it. If you just had a bit more money, everything would be okay. 
Maybe you're just sick of living on top of other people. And if you could just have a bigger house, the whole family would get along better. Maybe you're just exhausted. And if you could just get eight hours sleep in a row, you'd begin to function again. Maybe you feel lonely. Perhaps you just long for someone to share life with, either a partner or a best friend who actually knows you and understands you. Now, all of these are real problems. And I'm sure, if we think about it, each of us has probably faced at least one, if not all of them, at various stages in our lives. In the thick of any one of those problems, they can feel like a major issue. It can feel like the biggest problem in the world. And we can really believe that if we can solve that problem, everything else will just be okay. The thing is, we have a far bigger problem. In fact, it's the biggest problem facing all of mankind. We have been separated from our loving creator. This is the biggest problem facing mankind. It's not war, it's not famine, it's separation from a loving God. All of our other problems are still real, but they stem from this great problem. And if we try and fix everything else in our lives but ignore this problem, we're still going to be in serious trouble. If you go right back to the beginning of the Bible, you'll see the book of Genesis. This records God creating the world and making everything in it, including us. Now, in the, be in the beginning, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, know perfect relationship with God. This is the relationship they were made for. It's the relationship which brings them true satisfaction, true joy, true worth and meaning. It puts all other relationships in their proper context. Whether or not you know it or believe it, this is the relationship you were created for. And until you understand that, nothing else in this world will make sense. I saw a really funny video this week um, on, the, on the computer. It was some kids who'd found a cassette tape. They were trying to figure out how you get music out of it. They, they were holding it up to their ear. They were trying to plug headphones into it. One of them was even looking through it to see if it had music videos inside it. It was, it was hilarious. They were doing everything with this cassette tape apart from the thing it was created for, putting it in the tape player and pressing play. <laughs> you see, our lives are exactly the same. Until we realise what it is we've been created for, we're going to know constant frustration throughout our lives. Now, I've already said that at the beginning of the Bible, you'll see that God creates man and we experience this perfect relationship with him. However, we only make it a couple of pages into the entire Bible before we ruin it. We doubt God's goodness. We disobey him and we reject his rule. We decide we want to be in charge. This is what the Bible calls sin. Now, because God is holy, sinful man can no longer be in a perfect God's presence. Three pages into the Bible and it's all gone wrong and we're the ones that are to blame. Now, the Bible is made up of many books. It's got many characters in it and many themes throughout it. But there is one key theme which keeps coming up. God rescuing us. God fixing this broken relationship. Now, in some parts of the Bible, this is a theme which is bubbling away in the background and it can be quite difficult to spot. But in other places, it's more obvious. In our passage today, Hebrews 9 and 10, it is absolutely front and centre. So let's see what God has to say to us this morning about fixing 
the broken relationship and sorting out the biggest problem which mankind face. Now to understand Hebrews better, it's really important that we know it was initially written to Jewish converts. So these are people who were Jews and had become Christians. These are people who would have followed the teachings of the Old Testament, they'd have known scripture very well and they'd have been very familiar with the rituals of the Old Testament and the Jewish culture. It seems though for whatever reason they're turning their back on their new faith and returning to the old ways that they used to do things. The author here is desperate to show them that the rituals of the Old Testament were never really, were never, will never deal with sin and they were never supposed to. Instead they were a picture of something better. He wants them and us to know that only Jesus is able to offer us a way of dealing with our sin and mend the broken relationship. Now the majority of chapter 9 and 10 of Hebrews is taken up with comparing the new way and the old way of restoring our relationship with God. These are often referred to as covenants. A covenant is an agreement or a promise between God and his people. Now, if you were to look back at Exodus chapter 19, you would see that after God has rescued his people from Egypt, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And he says to them, if you keep these Ten Commandments, you can be my people and I will be your God. The people promise God, we'll obey you, we'll do it. The trouble is that they don't. Only a few pages later, they've completely mucked it up and they're literally dancing around worshipping false idols. They're back to square one. They failed to keep the promise they made to God. They're separated once again by their sin. Chapter 9 of Hebrews begins by describing the way in which the Jews had for hundreds of years tried to atone for this sin and restore their broken relationship. Now the Israelites, in accordance with what they were taught in, the, in their law, would offer animal sacrifices to God. They built a tent of worship called the tabernacle, and then later on a temple. Now inside this was somewhere called the holy place, and then further in was something called the most holy place. The most holy place represented the place on earth where God dwelt. It was separated by a huge curtain, as thick as a man's hand. Now any Israelite could enter the courtyard which surrounded the tabernacle, but only priests could go into the tent itself. And then look at verse 7 of chapter 9 to see what it says about the most holy place. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and the sins the people committed in ignorance. Now this is a far cry from how things were and how things are supposed to be. Now although the Israelites were not completely cut off from God, they certainly didn't know any kind of intimacy with him. Although the tabernacle was offering some sort of restoration with God, the whole structure of it really screamed one thing to the Israelite. Because of your sin, you cannot come in. Our relationship is broken. Now throughout the book of Hebrews, and particularly in this passage, the author wants to show us that the Old Testament sacrificial system was never supposed to be the final answer. Instead it was supposed to show them that something better was coming. It was a picture of what needed to happen on a far greater scale. If you look at 
Chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Or verse 4 says something very similar. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The sacrificial system is a little bit like a combat medic. A combat medic's job is to stop someone dying where they lie. They'll patch up wounds and they'll stop the bleeding. They'll do just enough to get the person evac'd. Now, if you look at the person as they're being taken away on a stretcher, you probably won't see much blood coming out and you probably won't see any of the wounds. However, internally, the person is still in all sorts of trouble. They need proper medical treatment, medication and probably surgery. In the same way, killing an animal, any animal, could never pay for our sins and make us right with God. It could never deal with a guilty conscience and it was never supposed to. It was supposed to be a picture. It was supposed to show God's people that the consequences of sin our death, and that the only way we can stop that from being our death is if something else dies in our place. But an animal, any animal, would never be enough, and another person could never do it because they've got their own sins. The only way it could work is if someone without sin died for those who are sinful. Or to use the words of Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is what the author has been bursting to come out with. Don't you see there's a better way? A way which actually works. God has done it. I love the way the author tells them as well. Instead of berating them for wanting to go back to the old covenant, he says, if you love the shadow or the picture, wait till you see the real thing. If you think the earthly high priests are good, wait till you see our heavenly high priest. Now, throughout our passage today, the author outlines numerous ways in which the death and resurrection of Jesus, the new covenant, surpasses the keeping of the law and the sacrificial system, the old covenant. There are numerous reasons given, but I wanted us to focus on three of the main ones before we move on today. So firstly, Jesus entered the real tent. Now, I've already said that the temple was a picture of something better. The most holy place represented the place on earth where God dwelt. But listen to the words of Isaiah 66, verse 1. This is God speaking. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where's the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? The almighty creator of the universe will not live in a house made by man, no matter how special we think it is. He dwells in the throne room of heaven. If a high priest is ever to offer a sacrifice which will actually atone for our sins, that's where the offering needs to be made, not in a tent. The problem is man can't get there. We need a high priest who is able to enter heaven for us. Thankfully, Jesus is both fully man, so he can represent us, and he's fully God, so he can get into heaven. Secondly, he offered himself. 
When the earthly high priest entered the most holy place, he would offer the blood of animals. But we've already seen that this could never be enough to pay for our sin. Chapter 9 and verse 12 shows us what Jesus had to place on the altar. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. This is what all the pictures have been pointing to. The perfect sacrifice, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus didn't have sacrifice an animal which had no say in the matter. Instead, he willingly laid down his own life. And unlike any earthly high priest, he didn't have to make an offering for his own sin because he is perfect. Jesus took the punishment we deserve and paid for it on the cross. This means that now when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin. Instead, he sees his son's perfect life and perfect sacrifice. The rightful punishment for our sin is death. But instead of taking our lives, Jesus laid down his own. He took the punishment we deserve. And because of this, our broken relationship with God can be restored. Thirdly, once for all. Now, because the Israelites kept on sinning, the high priest had to continually offer sacrifices on the altar. Jesus only made one sacrifice. What does this mean for us? We may well ask, what happens if after I've been forgiven, I continue to sin? Well, firstly, and I'm sorry to be the one to break it to you, it's not if I sin, it's when I sin. Because you see, you will continue to sin. We all do. And secondly, I think it's fair to say that the author of this passage preempted the question. Listen to these six verses from across chapters 9 and 10. 9 verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places. 9 verse 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 9 verse 28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Chapter 10 verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 10 verse 12, Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice. 10 verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now all those verses tell us the same thing, but I think perhaps chapter 10 verse 12 says it the loudest. A single sacrifice for all time. This is not a trick question. Is the past part of all time? Is the present part of all time? Is the future part of all time? Yes, of course it is. So if we are a repentant believer, any sin we've committed in the past, the present or the future has been paid for with the perfect blood of Jesus. Now, unlike the old covenant high priests, where they had to return again and again to continually make offerings, Jesus made one offering so perfect that all, offer all other offerings were now redundant. The cross was God's mic drop. It's done. It's finished. 
We tried basing your relationship on you being obedient to me and you couldn't do it. So I came down and I did it for you. I fixed it for you. We can now be reunited again the way it's always supposed to have been. Throughout chapters 9 and 10, the author gives numerous and compelling reasons that the new covenant surpasses the old. The old highlights how sinful we are. The new atones for that sin. The old reminds us that we are separated from God. The new reunites us. The old is based on us promising God. The new is based on God promising us. The old is based on works. The new is based on grace. The old is based on us making sacrifices. The new is based on God sacrificing himself for us. In summary, the new covenant surpasses the old in every way imaginable. Now, I could finish there, but for me, that, aren't, that raises a rather big question. If the new covenant is obviously so much better than the old, why does he spend two chapters convincing us of that? If it's so obvious, why do we need telling so much? Surely no one would return to something which is a picture of something better. It'd be like going to the Grand Canyon and instead of looking out at the amazing views, having your head down in a picture of views of the Grand Canyon. It's ridiculous. Who would do that? Us. <laughs> you see, God gave us ample opportunity to base our relationship with him on our obedience. We failed every single time. So he sent Jesus to obey him perfectly. Jesus then died on the cross, meaning now that we're not only forgiven, we are credited with Jesus's obedience. We couldn't do it, so God did it for us. This is perhaps the sweetest truth of the gospel, but it's also a truth which is incredibly difficult for sinful man to accept. God has done it for us. That means we haven't done it ourselves. This flies in the face of everything that the world teaches us about how we earn things. From a young age, we learn that you get rewards by working hard. You earn them. What's more, we should be most proud of the things which we've worked hardest to earn. Subconsciously, this thinking begins to affect the way which we view the gospel. We are grateful for what we've been given, but we want to feel more that we've contributed towards it in some way. Perhaps we acknowledge that we can't pay the full bill, but maybe we could just make a small contribution, leave some kind of tip. We may not build altars and try and burn physical sacrifices, but we certainly have a tendency to return to a salvation, which is based on us promising God instead of relying on the promises God has given to us. We slip from the new covenant to the old one. Now, Tim Keller has written a lot of helpful stuff on this, and he makes a really helpful distinction between the two. He says that religion, which is the old covenant, can be summarised as, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Whereas the gospel, so the new covenant, can be summarised as, I am accepted, therefore I obey. 
Now this summarises wonderfully the difference between the two, but it also highlights why the difference is so difficult to spot. You see, both groups are obedient, but it's the motivation which is so crucial. One group is obedient to earn their acceptance, the other already knows they've been accepted, and obedience is the result of that acceptance. Now on the face of it, this is a very subtle difference, but it is a big difference, and it is a difference that it's crucial we understand. Now if any of you is not sure that motivation is more important than the actual thing that you're doing, I've got a little challenge for you this week. I'd like you to go and buy flowers for someone you love this week. But as you hand them to them, I want you to say to that person, I didn't really want to give you these, but I kind of felt I had to. There you go. <laughs> Come back and share with us next week what you've learned about motivation and its importance. What motivates us to do stuff is important, and God always cares what our heart is telling us to do. When it comes to being obedient to God, it's really important we identify what our motivation is. So I want to finish by asking us three questions which will hopefully highlight whether we are trying to earn God's acceptance or we're living in response to having already been accepted. So first question, where is your confidence? Now if I were to tell you right now that Jesus is coming back in two minutes, what would you think? Now, if you've put your trust in Jesus and repented of your sin, you should be overjoyed and confident that Jesus is here to take you home. Sadly, though, this often isn't the case. I don't think I'm alone when I say that sometimes I might think something like this. Oh, no, I've had a really bad week. The only thing I've used my Bible for this week is as a coaster. I've barely prayed and I keep doing that thing I say I won't do. If it had come last week, it would have been much better. I went to the prayer meeting, I read my Bible every day, I was really good. You see, when we start to think like that, we are slipping from the new covenant to the old covenant. We're basing our standing before God and our acceptance by God on our performance not on what Jesus has done for us. Christians should absolutely fight to live holy lives. But the key thing which separates a Christian from a non-Christian is not how much or how little they sin, it's that they've repented of that sin and known Jesus' forgiveness for it. Question two, how do you view others? Now, if we think that our standing before God is based on our performance, it's inevitable that we will start comparing our performance to everyone else's performance. It can make us very critical of those who we think are performing worse than us. And it can make us resentful of those who we think are performing better than us. <clears throat> Within the church, it can breed bitterness. I'm always serving people in this place. No one ever sees what I do. So-and-so just comes in here, swans around. They don't know everything I sacrifice for this place. Or you can look at other people who are performing well and you can think, oh, I don't want them to perform too well. might make me look bad. I might look at one of Dan's kids' talks and think, well, I hope this isn't too good. I did mine last week and it might show it up. Instead of rejoicing in other people, we, we start making a competition with them. And this is just inside the church. It, it can affect the way we view people outside of the church as well. 
If you think that your acceptance before God is based on your performance, then you will look down on those who aren't performing well enough to be accepted. Any kind of evangelism we do will be cold and hard. It'd be more interested in winning the argument than sharing good news. By contrast, when we realise that we are sinners, saved by nothing but the blood of Jesus, it will affect how we view others. When you realise that you did nothing to earn your forgiveness, the only thing you have left to boast in is God. You can't look down on other people because you're acutely aware of your own sin and the fact that your Saviour had to die for you. Instead of evangelism being about standing on your soapbox, it will be more like one beggar trying to show another beggar where they can find some bread. My third question for you, what do you pray for? Now too often my prayer life, and I suggest probably all of our prayer lives, is, is infrequent. <clears throat> when we do pray, we come to God with a long list of things that we want. They're often things which involve our comfort. And the only time that our prayer life ever really heats up is when things have gone beyond our control and we feel a bit lost. Usually we do recognise that prayer is important, but it feels like a burden. And when we do do it, we almost feel like God needs to give us a pat on the back or something for our hard work. Chapter 10 and verse 16 gives us an idea of how it should look. This is from a quote from the Old Testament, which is summarising the New Covenant. This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. The New Covenant involves a far greater level of intimacy. It involves God entering our hearts, aligning our will with his. The more we live by the grace of the New Covenant, the more we will want the same things that God wants and the more that we will pray for the things that God wants. God is great and he loves glory being brought to his name. So this will be reflected in the way we pray. We will be overflowing with praise and thankfulness for all that God has done for us. Does this reflect the way that you pray? Now, the more we reflect in our own hearts and our own behaviour, the more we begin to see why two chapters were spent explaining to us not to slip from the new covenant to the old covenant. He desperately wants us to know that the death, death and resurrection of Jesus is the only way that we can know relationship with God. It's the only way that we can fix the biggest problem facing mankind. God gave us the opportunity to fix things for ourselves and we failed. So he came and he fixed it for us. Did you know that in ancient days when a king lost a battle away from his home city, the first thing he'd do is send his military advisers back to the city because his worry was that now whichever army defeated him would try and ransack his city while it was weak. The advisers, just as their name suggests, would go and offer advice about how to fortify the city, where best to place troops, how to stockpile supplies. They were basically telling the city what they could do to save themselves. They were offering advice. Now, if the king was victorious in battle, he didn't send his advisers back. He sent a herald. 
the herald would ride into the city and their job was to share the good news that victory has already been won. They weren't there to offer any advice. They were there to bring good news. This is what makes the gospel so amazing. It's not advice on how we can improve ourselves. It's the proclamation of a victory that has been won for us. Jesus did what we could not do ourselves. Christian, because of the cross, our relationship with God is not based on how much you sinned yesterday, today or tomorrow. It is based on nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as Dan so helpfully pointed out this morning, this is a truth which we cannot hear enough, Lord. Please get it into our heads, Lord, how much you love us and how much you paid for us. Remind us that we can do nothing to add to your sacrifice, Lord. Remind us that you are the God who loves us and you died for us. Amen.